Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Hallett M. E. Tagma, Assistant Professor in the Department of Politics and International Affairs at Northern Arizona University, and Dr. Paul E. Lenz, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Politics and International Affairs at Northern Arizona State University, to discuss their new and timely book, Understanding and Explaining the Iranian Nuclear Crisis, Theoretical Approaches, published by Lexington Books in 2020. Welcome to the New Books Network, Helen Paul. Hello, thank you for having us. Yes, hey, thank you. So understanding and explaining the Iranian nuclear crisis, and I should say that crisis is in scare quotes, combines established theories in both political science and international relations to encourage what you call eclectic pluralism. And it's an approach that embraces a variety of different theoretical uh, approaches to both explaining and understanding historical, geopolitical, international, domestic, and uh, dimensions of a particular case. Uh, In this case, in the book, the early 21st century uh, situation of the government of Iran's construction of a uranium enrichment and heavy water facility and the international response. And your, your book is exploring what is often called the crisis, but in a more nuanced and complex manner by, by slicing it into subcases to focus on the different forces and actors and creatively using the theory to in those subcases. Um, before we turn to this really interesting methodology and the findings of the book, but let me ask you about how you came to collaborate together and whether this was something new and, and how you managed the collaboration. My colleague uh, and friend, uh, Paul, we've been uh, together working in the same department for four years. Our uh, research interests and our teaching styles are pretty similar. And uh, I had been working on this project for a number of years now. And uh, after I got my book contract, I was working on it. I reached out to Paul and asked him if he wanted to join me in this project because uh, uh, I required some uh, energy and help from my colleague who uh, agreed to uh, be on board and write this uh, on this important topic for our times. Had either one of you been interested in Iran before? I have uh, I, uh, I've had a research uh, scholarship uh, some years ago, and I uh, produced a uh, co-authored article with one of my past students. And I have been interested uh, in the Middle East politics in Iran uh, since after I got my PhD. That's nearly 10 years. And I was glad to find my colleague, Paul, also interested in uh, this area. And that's how we got to collaborate. Uh, and Susan, I'd been studying uh, Middle East politics since I was in undergrad. Uh, and when I started graduate school, I focused extensively on militaries in the Middle East and also took classes on Iranian politics from uh, an Iranian scholar at the University of San Diego uh, named Ali Ghassari that really got me interested in the country of Iran. So it felt like a natural fit uh, to work with Hal on this book. 
No, it sounds like a, a friendship slash colleague uh, synergy that uh, w- one of the things on new books that we've been looking at is uh, Heath Brown has been doing a podcast with collaborators. And it's really interesting how everyone comes at collaboration differently. You divided up the chapters, lots of people write them together. So it, it's, it's something we've been thinking about here as we think about authorship. As I read the book, um, you are starting not with the case, even though uh, Paul in particular has background in, the, in, in this particular part of the world and this uh, situation. But rather than beginning with the case, what you start with is the importance of theory and your particular approach to theory. And you write that there's always a problem of bias as American and European observers, for example, interpret Iran through the lens of their own national interest. But, but you think that the book can overcome bias by, by thinking about contending theoretical approaches, uh, and, and that would give us a much richer and more nuanced understanding of Iran's nuclear program and the, the contention over it. And you also write that IR theories are often really good at simplifying a very complex situation, but you say that that's not always a good thing for understanding the nuances of a particular event or series of events. So let's start with why you think theory is so important to understanding international politics and how this particular approach, eclectic pluralism, helps you accomplish that that goal. Because it seems to me that part of the contribution of the book is the methodology and what you add to it. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I, uh, I got started, uh, my interest in this book started many, many years ago as I was uh, conducting some field research in the European and Middle Eastern area. And uh, I uh, came across several different perspectives on the topic of the Iranian nuclear crisis, crisis we put in quotation marks. Uh, and it seemed to me that, as you uh, eloquently put it, uh, each uh, scholarly background seemed to have certain biases based upon where they're coming from, what their national origin might be, what their ideological orientation is, and so on and so forth. And uh, although there are a number of good journalists and scholars are out there that are relatively impartial. We wanted to write a book that uh, is kind of detached from the everyday political uh, fighting of which side is argument is correct or not and so on. So we thought that a a theoretical uh, approach might help us overcome some of the inherent biases in doing a, a, a case study of a contemporary controversial topic. And um, the, um, if we look at the arguments coming from uh, even the national governments on the topic, we see themselves to be having dip- different opinions. For example, the 1968 Non-Proliferation Treaty uh, establishes uh, uh, nuclear weapons haves and nuclear weapons have-nots. The nuclear uh, weapons haves promises to give up nuclear weapons one day. Nuclear weapons have not say they will not develop nuclear weapons. And there's this very interesting uh, article in that treaty that says uh, nothing in this treaty shall be interpreted as affecting the inalienable right of all the parties to the treaty to develop research, production, and use of nuclear energy for peaceful purposes 
without discrimination and conformity with Articles 1 and 2 of the treaty. Now, much of Iran's diplomatic efforts in the political sphere has sought to advance arguments stemming from the first half of the article, which is, hey, we, doing, we are doing this for peaceful energy purposes, whereas the U.S.-led Western countries, on the other hand, focus on the same international legal document and focus on the latter part of the article, suggesting that because some of the nuclear activities have been done in, uh, in secrecy, this means that Iran is up to no good. Therefore, we interpret the situation differently. So as with all laws that relate to politics, there exist different interpretations. And from a political perspective, this contention will go on. So as long as there are different political actors with various different interests and, pre and preferences, now, that's uh, it's a, it's a further epistemological problem for political analysts who would want to strive for uh, scientific objectivity and remain impartial and objective. So how we uh, came up with the idea was to uh, use established theories that have been around in political science and international relations, in some cases decades, in other cases centuries, that have certain assumptions about how the world works, that has assumptions about who the most relevant actors are, what their interests and identities are. So uh, we thought that it would be useful to detach ourselves from the ongoing, say, uh, battles between different political sides and resort to a theoretical perspective that would help us uh, gain a vantage point on the arguments surrounding the Iranian nuclear crisis. Now, what is a theory? A theory is uh, simply a representation of some part of the world that indicates what is connected what, with what and how things works uh, in a specific realm. So theories attempt to simplify a very complex reality in order to help us better understand it. And in writing this book, we realized that uh, the uh, the some of the chapters we're presenting is not does not necessarily look like what one may read in a newspaper or watch in uh, visual media or what is told in a you know memoirs of a diplomat or a politician because uh, the, the theory what a theory does is takes up a case and uh, with its own assumptions and ideas about what the interests and actors are focuses on one part of a complex reality in order for us to better understand and explain it. And so that's what we uh, do in the book. Paul, do you, do you want to add anything on the methodology? I, I, I know some listeners will are IR people, and they may be interested in how this differs or is similar to work that's come before, like Sin and Katzenstein's call for analytic eclecticism. Like, is this the same? Is this different? Can, can one of you clarify that a little bit for the, for the people who are in the weeds? Well, I could uh, offer that uh, I was heavily influenced in my study uh, of political psychology in graduate school. Uh, and so uh, Graham Allison's work, you know, the, the taking of multiple cuts uh, at a particular issue uh, was something that I found hugely beneficial in trying to understand uh, particular international phenomena. And, you know, in discussions with Hal at the early stages of writing the book, uh, I found that he actually agreed with that similar perspective that you need these multiple cuts. So it's, it's very similar. 
uh, to Katzenstein's work, but it's for me the the writing of my chapters was inspired a lot by uh, Graham Allison's work, Essence of Decision. How? Yeah, I'd uh, like to uh, add on that. Uh, so we uh, introduced the uh, the concept of eclectic pluralism into international relations theory, a, a concept that we borrow from uh, theoretical mathematics. Um, let me break that down and try to uh, distinguish ourselves from previous approaches, uh, such as the one you mentioned, uh, analytical eclecticism by Katzenstein et al. <clears throat> We realize that the uh, the field of uh, IR, international relations theory, have matured into a phase of pluralism in which there are several different competing paradigms and uh, methodologies. Uh, and uh, we also noticed uh, that uh, we might be better off in generating knowledge if we were eclectic in our selection of theories in applying it to cases to help us understand and explain the world. And uh, we introduced the concept of uh, eclectic pluralism as we see as a step uh, further from the approach that Katzenstein argues because of the uh, problem of incommensurability, which suggests it's a concept that goes back to ancient Greek mathematics, that there are several different rival theories out there that have uh, useful explanations for how the world works, how the political world works, but mixing and matching them is not, uh, it cannot be done without encountering the problem of incommensurability, meaning, for example, that realism has a very different understanding of what power means than, for example, what a historical materialist understanding of power is. And we can't mix and match these in a passion that uh, remains consistent uh, within an argument. So therefore, we advance the concept of eclectic pluralism to suggest that uh, we can look at a case such as Iran that has uh, the Iranian nuclear crisis that has many different elements attached to it. There's a security and geopolitical dimension attached to it. There's a domestic politics dimension attached to it. There's a global economy dimension attached to it and two-level games and so on and so forth. So what we do is take up the case of uh, the Iranian nuclear crisis and slice it up into different mini-cases so and uh, apply the theory that seems best fit to explain that particular subcase. So for example, to answer the question uh, whether Iran's nuclear program might be uh, having a security-related uh, motivation, we pick up uh, uh, the realist theory of international relations and apply to it to understand and explain whether there's an international economic dimension, a global economic dimension to it. We pick up uh, a very separate theory with its own assumptions and uh, understanding of actors uh, and uh, we apply, for example, world systems theory. And so what we do in our eclectic pluralist approach, we don't suggest that one theory is better than the other. We just suggest that having them at the same time helps us understand the case in a more holistic manner that would be useful for analysts and scholars and students. So eclectic pluralism, this concept that we borrow from uh, theoretical mathematics, uh, is uh, 
argues that uh, that there's a variety of logics because there's a variety of fruitful theories whose underlying logics are non-classical. And theories are all legitimate theories if they are consistent. And so that's what uh, eclectic pluralism means. And it's uh, really a hybrid between eclecticism and pluralism, where pluralism rejects the domination of a methodological or epistemological monoculture. It accepts that there are several competing paradigms of inquiry and that they're legitimate in theorizing how the world works from their respective perspective. Now, on the other hand, eclecticism calls for flexibility, creativity, diversity, hybridization, and local and contextual fit. So what makes the uh, Iranian nuclear dispute approachable from the eclectic pluralist angle that we develop is that it's an international event suitable for the application of several different theoretical approaches. Uh, within the time span of this uh, Iranian nuclear contention, there are many areas of focus. There are international sanction, regional power politics, forces of global capitalism, capitalism, domestic politics, and bargaining between states. How? Let me ask you. In the book, you say that there are other lenses that you might have used. You specifically mention gender, post-colonialism, constructivism, green theory, and and you say explicitly that you're setting them aside to explain this particular international phenomenon. And, and I'm just curious about, about how you decided which lenses to use and which ones to, to set aside for this particular case. Uh, thank you for that, Susan. Uh, there are many legitimate ways of theorizing an international relation, which uh, uh, we embrace. Uh, they are some of the ones you suggested, uh, feminism, post-colonialism, Frankfurt School, and so on. Uh, it was, uh, the, hopefully this uh, first edition uh, was a, a first cut on these theories that are more of a mainstream theorizing on uh, international relations. And uh, in a second edition of the book, we would hope to uh, supplement it with a, a couple more of the theories that you mentioned. But that said, in the introduction, uh, our very use of eclectic pluralism uh, uh, embraces the uh, idea that IR theory is a very plural field and we come from a critical theory background and we hold that uh, these theories are legitimate, legitimate ways of theorizing and one is not necessarily better than the other. And uh, so that's our general attitude that we uh, present in the introduction chapter. Before we move to the chapters, I wanted to ask you a question about audience. Uh, who is the audience for this book? At different times, you're, you talk about the curriculum of foreign service officers and what they go through, military academies. H- how do you think about this book and who it's reaching? And I know it's been very hard to promote a book in a pandemic, but if you've, if you've had a response from some of those audiences, I'd be really curious as to, as, as to what they think of the book. Yeah, um, we wrote the book in an accessible language uh, for practitioners, students, undergraduate students, and the informed public. And I, w- I would agree with that, reading that. I'm not an IR theorist. Um, I, I, IR was one of my subfields in graduate school, and uh, Mearsheimer and Walt were my realist teachers. I found the book to be one that was a great combination of detail and nuance, but also one that 
stopped to orient people along the way. So I, I would say that it's incredibly accessible, uh, but also important for uh, specialists. I want to just ask you before we move on that, that you did interviews, you did direct observation, you looked at documents, uh, you were looking in particular at diplomatic and government records. I'm wondering if you had any particular aha moments in the archives in which you found something that either cut against your assumptions or confirmed them or led you to make some sort of change in the analysis. Well, Susan, uh, when I was Susan, when I was going through uh, the uh, IAEA uh, reports, but also uh, the uh, the documents uh, in the United Nations in regards to uh, sanctions, I found that uh, the literature uh, on sanctions uh, was actually quite correct. It was uh, the the data there within uh, those documents was confirming a lot of what uh, the sanctions literature uh, that neoliberals have talked about, that it proved true. Okay. So uh, one of the interesting things that I came across while writing the uh, history chapter of the Iran's nuclear program that we dated back to 1960s, I came across several interesting uh, uh, newspaper articles at the time and some of the uh, unclassified uh, documents. Uh, I'll just share two interesting moments with you. One uh, was when I uh, came across uh, a program between the United States government and Iran's government at the time, Shah's government, where uh, uh, several young uh, graduate students and students uh, from Tehran were sent to MIT to uh, get education on uh, nuclear research, nuclear engineering. And that was a very interesting moment for me. Uh, a second uh, s- uh, thing that I came across that uh, surprised me was uh, one, in one unclassified document uh, in the 1970s, I came across one of the telegrams from the uh, U.S. Embassy to, from Tehran to uh, Washington in, at, at the time when which the, uh, the Shah of Iran was thinking of uh, opening up several nuclear power plants in the 1970s, one uh, American analyst wrote at the time that, uh, quite tellingly from a real politic angle, that if he follows through, that if Shah follows through with establishing uh, several nuclear uh, power plants around, and if somehow there is a regime change in Iran one day, this is the mid-70s when this document was, and this might pose a problem for U.S. governmental interests. So that was a very interesting aha moment for me. Now, that's great. Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, your chapter uh, two on realism and Iran's nuclear program. So uh, take us through a little bit of which theory you're using in that chapter and how it illuminates uh, the contention over the nuclear program. Sure. Um, So in this chapter, we uh, take up realism. Realism is a big tent. It has very different uh, genres, subgenres within it. Uh, What we try to answer uh, in this chapter is, is whether there might be a security related aspiration as to whether Iran Maybe using its nuclear program for a clandestine military purpose. 
Now, that is not to say it is, it would, it should, or it could, but just to understand if there might be a possible security-related aspiration uh, for Iran's uh, uh, nuclear program. So with that uh, said, um, we take up, uh, we advance to uh, structural realist hypotheses in this uh, chapter uh, in order to understand why the Iran nuclear crisis is a crisis. It takes two to tango. It's not because just Iran is pursuing a nuclear uh, program, but because uh, other actors, uh, most importantly, the United States regards this as counter to its interest, which is why we refer it to as a crisis in quotation marks. Now, in the, in the first half of this chapter, we advance a defensive structural realist argument, uh, something that you might be familiar with, Susan, as uh, Steve Walt uh, is an author that we uh, heavily borrow from in advancing our hypothesis. And we ask our question, we ask ourselves the question, does Iran feel threatened by its environment? And from a defensive structural perspective, we ask the questions, is there any uh, more powerful state in Iran's neighborhood? Are those powerful states have uh, benign intentions toward Tehran or malign intentions? Are there any territorial disputes that Iran is facing? Is uh, Iran internationally isolated and so on and so forth? So we ask these set of questions that is uh, the same similar set of questions that uh, originally uh, Steve Walt developed. And we code these based on our case study as to whether Iran, from a defensive structuralist perspective, uh, might feel threatened, which in turn might lead itself to explore alternative means of uh, deterring possible aggressors against itself. Now, just as I'm speaking this, you might notice that this is coming from an objective background. It's not siding with any political actor here. We're just applying uh, this uh, defensive structuralist framework upon this particular case, Iran. And we find that uh, when we apply this framework, Iran does seem to have uh, uh, a perception of threat that it cannot deter through conventional means. And so what that spells for us is that uh, there might be uh, security-related inspirations for Iran to pursue in the long term a nuclear weapon. Now, this is not to say that it is doing that, that uh, it is currently doing that, or it should do that, or it could do that, but this is what the theory uh, is telling us. So that's the first uh, theory uh, that uh, we suggest uh, has an explanatory value. Um, and the second one that we pick up is, uh, again, one of your professors, uh, John Mearsheimer. <clears throat> uh, John Mearsheimer advanced uh, an offensive structuralist, uh, offensive structuralist approach to help us understand how nation states be behave in the world. And uh, in his valuable book uh, called Tragedy of Great Power Politics, he advances that the United States is the sole regional hegemon of a hemisphere in the world uh, 
has a has an interest to prevent the rise of other regional hegemons. And from the so from the perspective of the United States, when we apply this offensive structuralist framework, we can understand why, even though Iran is far away from uh, U.S. homeland or it doesn't have uh, capabilities to actually threaten the United States in a meaningful way, we have an explanation as to why the United States is uh, using a term uh, coined by Mearsheimer, offshore balancing against Iran in the Middle East as it sees it uh, as a rising power in the Middle East that threatens its own interests. So together, these two hypotheses, these theories that we advance defensive structural realism for Iran's uh, offensive structuralism from the point of view of the United States, we see that uh, they come nicely together as in the classic realist concept of the security dilemma, which is uh, when a state takes steps to secure itself, it spells the insecurity of others, and we see this dynamic to be happening, interestingly, between both parties. So that's the perspective that the realism offers into this complex uh, dynamic. Now, that said, what's, what may help, say, for example, uh, diplomats understand or why some governmental actors understand why this is brewing into a crisis uh, the theory fails, uh, in a sense, uh, when we see the 2015 uh, Iran nuclear deal being signed because realism uh, predicts uh, conflict uh, to happen, not uh, as much as cooperation. And so the, G- the signing of the JCPOA was an anomaly from the point of view of realism uh, as we develop it in this chapter. And uh, so uh, that's why we uh, show that, you know, it has a strength, realism, but there's also weaknesses as, uh, as it can't explain the entire chunk of reality as we're seeing on the ground. So speaking of the next chunk of reality and the, the, the sort of alternative, how does looking at political economy, for example, uh, change that up and what kind of theory do you use to 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 show that other side that realism cannot capture yeah um so realism uh we, we outlined the major assumptions of realism such as uh, the world is anarchic nation states are the main actors that pursue their national interests and they're in competition with one another to strive for power and security uh in the chapter that follows, uh, we present a very different theory that uh, has different assumptions about how the world works, contrary to the anarchic picture presented by realism. Uh, this chapter shows that the uh, world is hierarchically ordered with an economic division of labor between different types of countries. And the theory that we use uh, is informed from a historical materialist perspective. That is called uh, world systems theory, uh, which sees that uh, contra to uh, what realism says that uh, nation states pursue their national interest, uh, world systems theory disagrees with that assumption and says national governments uh, fulfill the demands of their national capital and that there is a ruling economic elite that uh, control the political apparatus 
and uh, uh, so quote hijack the national interests to pursue their own specific economic interest. And uh, world systems theory sees that this integrated global economic order carries within itself many antagonisms that threaten its survival. Uh, these antagonisms can be observed, in, uh, especially in the underdeveloped peripheral countries that have led to, in the course of the 20th century, decolonization movements, revolutionary movements, anti-Western movements, and so on and so forth. So in this integrated world economic system, there are core countries which, uh, so to speak, are at the top and uh, benefit from this uh, integrated world economy, and then there is semi-peripheral and peripheral regions of the world uh, that uh, are tasked within the division of labor of supplying, say, the natural resources, maybe oil and gas or rubber or iron, uh, to lubricate the world economy. And the way we look at the Iranian nuclear crisis, contra to the previous one, has a very different time span. in the realist chapter, we focus on uh, two to three decades, whereas in the world system chapter, we focus on a hundred-year history, looking at how Iran is integrated into the global capitalist economy uh, with thanks to the uh, vast uh, natural resources, oil specifically, that uh, it had, and how the then Shah regime in Iran was... Uh, had an alliance with the economic elite of core countries and everything was nice and good for a while, except that this uh, antagonisms built, inbuilt in between the haves and have-nots that can be seen in not just core countries, but also peripheral countries, kind of blows up once in a while. And that blowing up was the Iranian Revolution of 1979, which then spelled uh, a, a, a great shift from the nice, cozy partnership between the uh, core countries uh, and uh, the Iran regime, the Iranian Shah regime at the time. So when we look at uh, the world in such terms, that it is hierarchical, that there is an economic elite that steered the political agenda of of core countries as well as peripheral countries, and, and that there are antagonisms built into the system that especially in peripheral countries blow up once in a while. We come to understand that the uh, the enmity between uh, the post-1979 Iranian government and Western powers has its roots in uh, uh, not necessarily a kind of realist security dilemma, but in terms of a, a, a diverging economic interest. And uh, we see that post-1979, the core countries attempt to uh, isolate Iran. Uh, I want to kill off its revolutionary spirit because it, uh, that, that revolutionary spirit, the Shia revolutionary spirit in post-1979 Iran would uh, spell grave dangers for the economic interests of core countries uh, that have embedded interest in the, in the economies and polities surrounding Iran. So um, the so, contrary to realism, that would say that nation states are uh, caught up in a survival 
dog-eat-dog world kind of situation, the world systems theory does not really see that, say, for example, an 18-year-old from Mansfield, Ohio, is necessarily threatened by another 18-year-old from Shiraz, Iran, due to an existential security threat that realism prescribes, right, in the previous chapter. Rather, what we see when we look at the world from the perspective of world systems theory is that there are economic elites that control the political apparatuses of governments. And uh, what we're seeing in terms of this long history of uh, the Iranian uh, dispute with Western governments is quite something else. And when we bring it to the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, with all of its technical and diplomatical nuances, the Iran nuclear deal can be regarded as an attempt by core country capital interests desire to integrate Tehran into the global capitalist economy by allowing its natural resources to be exported into the global energy markets, while at the same time putting a lid on the nuclear program. Enormous amounts of money were to be made if uh, Western capital could freely import and export with Iran. Uh, and given this background, uh, for example, the French Total uh, Energy Company, for example, is the is the most powerful company in France, and it has uh, uh, very close ties with the French political establishment. And French Total wanted to uh, exploit this uh, the world's largest natural gas field that is under Iranian sovereignty, right in the uh, the Persian Gulf. And it was really pressing hard for Iran to be integrated into the uh, economy. And for example, we see how uh, after the Trump administration wanted to initially cancel the JCPOA, French President Macron was heavily lobbying Washington in order to persuade uh, the Trump administration from not pulling from this deal. So we see that there are a lot of big business interests that were vested in uh, in the Iran nuclear deal. For example, the uh, American uh, Boeing company was uh, going to export billions of dollars of worth of uh, airplanes and other European companies were going to export consumer goods into Iran with this deal. But uh, however, we don't see uh, uh, corporate interests or economic interests as monolithic. We borrow a term called fractions of capital that shows that there are diverging interests within economic interests in the United States, European countries. And there was another cluster of interests that saw that, that the Iran nuclear deal would allow Iran to uh, export its uh, natural resources, thereby reducing the price of uh, uh, those commodities, which would be at odds with uh, some of the other Western companies that would uh, be that would not like that from happening. And uh, so there were several different other economic interests that clustered around the uh, Trump administration and lobbied for uh, the withdrawal of the United States from the uh, Iran nuclear deal. So what we're seeing, to sum it up, is a, is a, is a tug of war between different competing fractions of capital when it comes to the Iran nuclear deal. And this, a very different perspective, the world systems theory perspective, 
uh, offers a, a contradictory one than realism presents. But we also uh, conclude the chapter by suggesting that this is also a very structuralist and deterministic uh, uh, way of looking at the world. It helps us understand and explain very interesting dimensions of the Iran nuclear crisis and the JCPOA, Iran nuclear deal. But given that it, uh, it leaves literal room for political agency, for political actors, its deficiencies also must be noted, which is why we then open up uh, the following chapters to alternative ways of looking at the Iranian nuclear. Thanks, Hal. And, and actually, that's a really nice segue to Paul's chapter six, which I think really explains more about how foreign policy decisions are made and how domestic groups are influencing what their leaders' decision-making strategies can can be. So, Paul, let's let's turn to your your work on this uh, negotiation on the JCPOA and how President Barack Obama from the United States and Grand Ayatollah Khomeini from Iran negotiated this deal. And um, it would be helpful also if you can explain the two-level games and the three-level game uh, methodology that you use throughout the chapter. Oh, sure. I'd be happy to. Uh, So in this chapter, chapter six, uh, we're focusing specifically on uh, the lead up to the signing of the JCPOA, and we want to examine uh, the influence that domestic politics has on international negotiations. You know, this is not a new phenomenon. What we're actually doing is applying uh, Robert Putnam's famous uh, article from International Organization uh, that focuses on uh, the relationship between interest groups uh, domestically and how that influences negotiations internationally. That's what's known as the two-level games. Uh, It's used to examine the foreign policy of states by focusing specifically on the interactions that influence leaders' uh, negotiations. And so in uh, the period leading up to uh, the second term of the Obama administration, you have pretty stark forces on both sides. In the United States, uh, you have uh, Congress, uh, which uh, was, uh, at the time, the House of Representatives uh, was uh, led by Democrats who were uh, very supportive of Obama's foreign policy. But you had opposition coming uh, from within the foreign policy establishment, specifically neocons uh, and other uh, conservatives who since 1979 and the Islamic Revolution have been anti-Iran. It doesn't matter what Iran would do. Uh, the United States was was supposed to be against what they were doing to prevent uh, a regional hegemon rising in the Middle East. Now, on the other side, in Iran, uh, Khamenei uh, was uh, at the top of uh, an organizational chart, if you will, uh, that has the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, uh, the, the Ayatollahs, uh, as well as the various Iranian nuclear agencies, uh, and all of them had interests in Iran uh, developing uh, nuclear energy and later a nuclear weapon. But under uh, the Iranian regime, 
it's the Ayat- the Grand Ayatollah Khamenei's uh, positioning that he needed to play the interests of these actors off of, of one another. Uh, and that's what he was attempting to do because he was doing so to limit uh, the influence of the population. He wanted to ensure the, what he felt would be the legitimacy of his regime, despite all of the pressure that was coming from inside the regime, as well as the outs, uh, as well as outside the regime. Now, in 2012, uh, you have uh, Obama reelected, uh, and then in 2014, you have the Republicans win. Uh, more seats in the House of Representatives, and this increases uh, animosity towards uh, the regime because outside of Congress, you also have uh, APAC, uh, which is influencing uh, Congress, as well as essentially being the spokesperson for uh, the Israeli government of Benjamin Netanyahu, a Likud government you know that tends to be pretty strong anti-Iran. So in the two-level games, the way we apply it is that in order for negotiations to be successful, uh, Putnam argues that uh, you have to increase your win sets. Uh, the, the number of win sets as you get, these are successes in a negotiation or support for uh, a particular negotiation strategy. If you're able to increase your win sets, then the likelihood of, ne- of a successful negotiation at the international level between the two leaders is more likely to be successful uh, than not. Uh, and what we argue uh, in the chapter is that the various interests uh, within both sides, they are paying attention to the politics of the other country. You know, for those uh, listeners who might pick up the book, on chapter, or on, excuse me, on page two fifteen, uh, in chapter six, uh, Hal uh, created a very gr- uh, distinct diagram that explains uh, in pictorial form uh, this relationship. So that uh, in the two level game, you have state leader A and state leader B uh, who are bargaining back and forth uh, with the domestic interests influencing the negotiations of each of those leaders. Where we alter the two-level game and call it a three-level game, we're trying to say that both the domestic interests and uh, the leaders are paying attention to the history of uh, the other uh, country and the the history of uh, various issues that have gone on with that other country, but also within uh, the crisis itself. And that as uh, the circumstances within uh, the domestic situation changed, the, the possibility for wind sets increased. So because President Obama won re-election, he now had the ability, according to American politics, to try and be more aggressive in foreign policy, knowing that he could blunt the domestic opposition within uh, his own country, while understanding that uh, Hamani had to ensure that the Revolutionary Guard would not dominate uh, the discussions within Iran, but also with a more uh, moderate uh, Ayatollah who would become president uh, in Rouhani, this allowed for the negotiations to continue, but also allowed for both Iran and the United States 
to gain Winsets, and that's what made the negotiation possible. I love that chart, and so I'm so glad that you highlighted it, Paul. Um, and I and I also love the way the chapters go together. So I did say that I I took all those classes from Steve Walt and John Mearsheimer, and that is all true. But I was unbelievably frustrated by those classes. In fact, um, I feel like my blood pressure was highest when I was in John Mearsheimer's presence because. I'm a political theorist. I think ideas matter. I also do public law. I think law matters. I think everything matters, basically. And so what I what I think can be very, very frustrating about IR theory is that uh, desire for parsimony that makes things like who's in charge of Congress in a particular country or what a particular person can do. Um, not part of what we can consider. So what I think is really terrific about the book is the way that um, uh, the the way the subcases come together. And it doesn't surprise me, Paul, that you're such a fan of Graham Allison. That's a book that I remember reading as an undergraduate. And this idea of, of turning things around and looking at them from different angles and realizing that with different assumptions, you can come up with very different understandings of the case. So I, I, I really think you succeeded in applying all of these theories uh, in, in interesting ways that really allow us to sort of see this as a multifaceted gem that um, is, is quite nuanced and complex. With all books, uh, the manuscript is turned in, but politics continue. Uh, as we're recording this, Iran's uh, nuclear program is back in the news. I- I'm wondering if thinking about since the book's publication, what's been going on, if you have any particular uh, insights or thoughts that, that you might want to share. Well, uh, yes, I'll uh, share a couple things. Uh, if... Uh in uh, chapter uh, six, we also bring up the fact that Trump's positioning uh, vis-a-vis Khamenei uh, had a lot to do uh, with the fact that uh, the Iranian nuclear program uh, was restarted. And so Iran uh, has been able to work with outside actors uh, like China, like Russia, after uh, the U.S. withdrew in 2018 because what it's attempting to do is trying to improve its negotiation, negotiating position. You know, if you view it from uh, the lens of uh, this two-level or three-level game. Uh, so I think uh, in order for uh, new negotiations uh, to happen, it's not a certainty that they're going to happen because Number one, the sanctions, uh, as are discussed in the neoliberalism chapter, uh, those sanctions uh, haven't worked. And there isn't as much buy-in as there was back when uh, the lead-up to the JCPOA was happening. Uh, So, you know, I'll turn it over to Hal because I think uh, he would agree with me that realism offers a a, a nice explanatory explanation of what we're going to see here in the the next few months and years. Yeah. um, Thanks for that, Paul. I was, uh, 
always thought that political scientists, all of us, uh, do a good job in explaining and understanding the past. We're not as great in uh, uh, seeing the future. Uh, I'm not aware of many who uh, saw the end of the Cold War, saw the uh, coming of the Arab Spring, and many other interesting developments. But that said, uh, from uh, the perspective that we advance, these theories, and we just picked up three of them. There are several others in the book, one that looks at domestic politics, the other at liberal institutionalism, and so on. These theories have uh, been around for a long time in that they have certain assumptions about who the actors are, who their interests are, and how politics plays out. And some for the, I wouldn't make about predictions about any uh, short or medium-term future, but given that these theories will be around, they can offer some trajectory as to how this conflict uh, might be resolved or might not be resolved. Uh, from the point of view of realism, and this is something we didn't talk much about in the uh, in our short interview here, the, uh, the, the Middle East, uh, the, the region of the Middle East, one of the most important developments uh, besides the Iranian revolution was the U.S. invasion of uh, Iraq in 2003, which effectively ended a tripolar situation, a tripolar situation in which in the Persian Gulf, there were Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and Iran as the leading powers, and these were kind of balancing each other out. With the elimination of Iraq as one of those poles of power, what we've been seeing is this kind of uh, rising regional bipolarity between Iran and affiliates and Saudi Arabian allies, uh, Gulf allies backed by the United States. And so from a realist perspective, given that realism is pessimistic, uh, this uh, dispute would continue. But again, realism, as has been shown to be uh, amused, rather, with the signing of the Iran nuclear deal, only offers a partial uh, prognosis here. I think uh, the... uh, World systems theory might offer us uh, an explanation as to why there might be a new deal if it happens, in that there is a lot of uh, economic interest in both within uh, Iran and in Western capitals as well that want to revive the nuclear deal for economic purposes, along with the long-term strategic goal of perhaps nor quote normalizing Iran and its integration into not just the world economy but the regional power structures. So that that would be my prognosis. And that uh, with a new administration in uh, January twenty, and there's a uh, uh, more than thirty days left till that day, and twenty four hours in politics is a very long time. Uh, but uh, if that happens without a major incident, we might see a either a renegotiation or a renegotiation ending in the original deal uh, being discussed between the U.S. and allies and Taiwan. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Hal. Um, I know it took you a long time to write this book. Uh, What are you each working on right now? Paul, if you'd go first. Uh, Currently, uh, Hal and I have uh, been working on uh, research uh, for uh, a new book on uh, energy 
politics, uh, in the gas grab in the Eastern Mediterranean, and the influence on uh, pipelines uh, with uh, the Syrian civil war and the Libyan civil war, and the effect that that that's had uh, upon uh, regional conflict. Uh, and I'll let Hal speak more to the subject of that book. I'm also working on uh, a book examining the decline of American hegemony uh, in the various regions of the world uh, and trying to offer uh, either a classical realist but also constructivist interpretation of how foreign policy uh, of the United States has influenced the rise of China uh, as well as Russia's reemergence in places like Eastern Europe, Africa, the Middle East, uh, and Asia. So those those are two uh, book uh, contracts that I have that uh, I'll be working on the book with Hal first uh, and then finishing up uh, my other book uh, in the next year or two. Thanks, Paul. Hal, what about you? What are you working on right now? Uh, Paul already mentioned we're excited about this uh, new book uh, that is related to the uh, Iran nuclear dispute as uh, we see that many uh, different countries around the world seem to be focusing on the uh, Eastern Mediterranean uh, energy fields and that seems to be a brewing conflict of interest for many powers and we're that's a book that we're working on nowadays. The other research that I'm working on is uh, uh, I'm a, I'm a Theorist by training, I uh, my PhD supervisor was uh, Richard Ashley, so, uh, and uh, I wanted to go back to my dissertation that was uh, a very philosophical piece on uh, the, the place of the international relations discipline and its theorizing within the modern uh, architecture of the university. So, uh, beside that work with Paul, I'm gonna work on my dissertation and push it out in the next Well, those all sound great. And when they're books, we'll love to have you back on new books in political science. Uh, the book that we've been discussing is by Halit Tagma and Paul Lenz. It's called Understanding and Explaining the Iranian Nuclear Crisis, Theoretical Approaches, published by Lexington Books last month, 2020. Uh, it's available on, their, uh, on the publisher's website, uh, also on bookshop.org, and we're urging listeners, uh, especially in the pandemic, to try to support your brick-and-mortar bookstores. So thank you both so much uh, for taking the time to to chat today, and uh, I, I highly recommend the book. It's readable, it's very interesting, and it couldn't be more timely.